take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18. We are finishing up chapter 18 this morning. Well, no, we're not. I lied. It's what it says in your bulletin that we're going to look at 18 through 28, but we're actually only going to go through 23 this morning. 18 through 23 is the passage that we are looking at. Uh, we are coming to the end of, uh, we're actually at the end with this passage of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he has completed the rounds he was going to make. Now he has uh, finished his year and a half in Corinth, and he's heading home for a bit. Uh, nowadays, we would call it furlough uh, when our missionaries come home for a, a time uh, of rest before they head back out. But we kind of need to understand some things about Scripture this morning. I, I want to go over this passage um, is inspired and has a purpose. This verses 18 through 23. The, the, the question is, what? See, Luke could have left out 18 through 23. He could have, it would have been fine to end at verse uh, 17, the, the, the ministry in Corinth, the, the, uh, uh, the, well, there's a word here I'm looking for, the, the, the judgment, that's the word I'm looking for, the judgment of Gallio that said he could preach, that was fine, and Luke could have said, and he preached for a long time, and then he went home. And then we pick up with the third missionary journey. But he didn't do that. He, he, he didn't leave it out. Um, and the thing is, in this passage, we're not going to find any deep doctrinal teaching. Luke isn't going to, it's not a recording of, of one of Paul's sermons. We're, we're not going to uh, be discussing the, uh, the minute aspects of the Trinity or uh, how salvation works in the heart of a lost person, or how Jesus can be both divine and human. We're not, we're not going to discuss any of those things here. We're not going to walk away from this becoming a new denomination because of Acts 18, uh, 18 through 23. So we're, we're not going to just be blown away, or we wouldn't expect to be, maybe, uh, by this little narrative portion of Scripture. And that's the case oftentimes with a lot of narrative. This is why a lot of preachers don't like to preach narrative. It's why there are parts that I come to that I go, oh, what in the world are we going to do with this? Because narrative, by its very nature, isn't didactic. It isn't a teaching passage. Man, we can go through Paul's letters all day long. And, and, we can, and I can stand up here and say, do this and don't do that because Paul says so right here and it makes for an easy sermon and we all either walk away feeling good because we don't do the things he said don't do or bad because we do do the things he said don't do or good because we do do the things he says do or uh, uh, bad because we don't do the things he says do. So we can be fine walking away from it and the, the, the narratives are more difficult. Like, Lord, what are you teaching us through this? Because... Here's the thing we believe as Baptists, as conservative Baptists, as conservative evangelicals. The Holy Spirit put verses 18 through 23 in the Bible for a reason. This is just as inspired scripture as anything Paul wrote, as anything that the apostles recorded that Jesus said. It is just as inspired as anything else. 
So what do we do with it? It's inspired and the Holy Spirit it there. And it's kind of where I got, it is where I got the title of the message this morning. It's the little things. Because in this brief recounting of a bunch of months uh, and between verses 18 uh, verse eight, uh, 18 of chapter 18 and verse 1 of chapter 19, Paul covers about 1,500 miles of travel in just a handful of verses. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, a lot of stuff we don't know uh, about, but Luke hits just, I think, five principles here that we can glean. And it's something that it, it, it didn't take the preacher coming up with this. I believe these are things that if we spend time with Scripture, not just read through it for a, a gold star or a, 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 a ribbon at the end of the, the year, but if we go to Scripture and say, Lord, this is your word put here by you, what are you teaching us even through what appears to be uh, mundane travel log because really one of the purposes of this for Luke is to wrap up the second missionary journey and get ready for the third to tell us what's going on but again while that may have been only Luke's purpose or maybe that would have been Luke's only purpose I don't think it was Luke's only purpose but even if that's what he was thinking that's not I believe what God was thinking God was putting the scripture here to teach us and these five principles that we're going to see, you, you might, Michael, how'd you come up with this stuff from this? I just spent time with it. There, there wasn't anything magical. Uh, I spent time in the Word. I spent time asking God. And I read what other people had written about this passage and thought, oh, I didn't know that because of the context from somewhere else. It ain't nothing y'all can't or shouldn't do. Spend time in God's word and he will speak to us from what may be to us the strangest of places. And I think we see some of that, the little things here in verses 18 through 23. Read it with me. If uh, you need a Bible, there's a copy of the scriptures in front of you in, in the pew rack there. Uh, take one and follow along with us. After staying for some time in Corinth, in case we've forgotten, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Kentrea because of a vow he had taken. And when they reached Ephesus, he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined, but he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. I, like I said, I think we have five principles here, and they're somewhat connected the last two or three maybe are a little more connected than the first two but again there are things that we can draw from the scripture as we read through it knowing where Paul has been knowing as we do having read the end of Acts 
uh, knowing where he is going, knowing how this passage connects. It's kind of like where Corinth was, an isthmus between these two major land masses. This, and, and in that little strip of land, Corinth became a hugely important city to the ancient world. Well, here we have maybe not quite that level of importance, but we find import in this little isthmus of writing that Luke put in Acts. I think the first principle we can see here is the ministry of friendship. In verses 18, in verse 18, and just the first half of that verse. After staying, staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Let's remember that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila at the beginning of his ministry in Corinth. So he's only known them now for a year and a half. Uh, but they were believers, best we can tell, when they came to Corinth. They shared the same trade as Paul. Uh, they were apparently, uh, according to context, very wealthy folks. They, uh, it, it's possible even that they were franchising their business, that they had a business back in Rome, and they left that uh, because later on we're going to find out that they are back in Rome uh, eventually. Um, but they spent, they were in Rome, then they started this business in uh, Corinth, and then later on they're going to go, they are now going to Ephesus with Paul. They're going to stay there for some time. All of these are major uh, trade cities, so they are very likely part of what they're doing is, is franchising their business, which is uh, an interesting take on it. It's also going to, going to uh, add some boost later on to what Paul's doing in his ministry and uh, his missionary journeys as well. But in that year and a half, we see an incredible bond formed between these three people. It was a bond, as you can imagine, that uh, formed over their work as they sat making the cloth or tanning the, the leather or whatever it was exactly that they did together making these tents. You can see them talking about things, uh, uh, talking about issues, talking about the gospel, talking about God's word. You know what we call that? The big fancy word we call that? Discipleship. That's all it was. In their regular, everyday life, they spent time with each other, and they, as the Bible tells us, were iron sharpening iron as they discussed the scriptures. They became uh, friends in the ministry they became uh, just friends, it appears. And let me tell you, personal experience, that having friends in the ministry is huge. And I'm not talking about just friends who are ministers. We have wonderful friends here uh, that are on staff with us. They're, they're, they're staff, but they're also friends. But we have wonderful friends in the church. It is huge to have that kind of relationship as a minister. To have people that you can sit down and just be yourself with. And no, no barriers, no errors, no expectations. We in the ministry haven't always had that in churches. And we are extremely blessed to have that here. So that is a ministry in, just in, 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 unto itself. Being friends with Paul. It's a lonely job. And we're going to talk about here in a minute that he doesn't have any other companions at the moment, best we can tell. 
this bond is so great. This relationship is so incredible. The, the, the iron sharpening iron was so uh, uh, productive that Aquila and Priscilla become missionaries. Now they are going with Paul. Are they thinking, hey, we can start a franchise in Ephesus? Possibly. I mean, they're, they're thinking, if, if anything, though, what they're thinking is, you know what? We would be great to go with you, Paul, as missionaries to Ephesus because we've got a job we can take with us. Ephesus is a, a great port city. It's, it would it, be a wonderful place to start um, Priscilla and Aquila's Tents 3 and put down some roots and reach Ephesus with the gospel. Principle number one, the ministry of friendship. Relations born around kingdom mission can grow you beyond what you ever expected. I'd be willing to bet Priscilla and Aquila never thought they would be missionaries to Ephesus. They probably never thought that they would be so closely involved with such a great mission effort as they were a part of in Corinth. Corinth, to this point, is the crown jewel of uh, Paul's missionary endeavors, but it will soon be superseded by the missionary effort in Ephesus and what he does there, but doesn't do alone because he has Priscilla and Aquila, and there are some uh, uh, donations to this, and I don't mean monetarily, by Apollos that we're going to learn about next week. But it's all because that relationship, that ministry of friendship, that relationship that was born around this kingdom mission. And it takes us further than we could imagine. This discipleship. Second principle I think we can see here is the second part of verse 18, 18b. We see personal integrity on the part of Paul. He shaved his head at Kentrea because of a vow he had taken. How completely random. We don't know anything about this vow. I mean, that, that, that's the question. What was this vow? It has never been mentioned prior to now. And Luke interjects this one little sentence, and Paul shaved his head because of a vow. So at some point, he had decided to let his hair grow out for whatever reason. It was, it was part of this vow that he would not shave his head, would not cut his hair until this happened. The only thing we can probably glean from this is that it was most likely a Jewish vow. There were Greek vows that, that uh, uh, involved haircuts and that sort of thing, but that probably wasn't what he was doing here. It just wouldn't have made sense on this missionary, this particular missionary journey for him to do it. Nobody would have really cared. So it was most likely a Jewish vow. But, but what was it? And the answer is, we don't know. And yet Luke puts in here suddenly about him shaving his head for a vow that he never mentioned. This would be called uh, poor authorship. And uh, if we were grading this, a, literary, a literature professor, a writing professor would say, that's, that's nice, but you never mentioned this anywhere else. So this, this little detail is superfluous. It, it's, a, it's completely unnecessary to the story. Luke, you need to edit that out. But the Holy Spirit said, hey, put, he shaved his head at Kentria because of a vow he had taken. 
in your narrative, Luke, for my people to read 2,000 years from now and go, what was this vow? Well, let's, let's remember some context here. And this is really just speculation uh, on, on what it was for, but the beginning of the second missionary journey, if you look back in chapter 15, began with a letter from the Jerusalem church about Gentiles. The, the Jewishness, the, the Jewish acceptance of Gentile believers. So it began with this Jewish idea. It began with Judaism. He is basically on a mission for the Jewish brothers at the Jerusalem church. And then Luke bookends in uh, biblical studies and in literature, it's called an inclusio. It mentions something at the beginning of a passage and mentions something at the end. So you know that everything in the middle went together. And there are some scholars that say this Jewish vow, this apparently Jewish vow, acts as a bookend to that letter. Paul has fulfilled what he was sent to do, and maybe he didn't cut his hair for the two years or more that he was gone on this missionary journey. It's nice speculation, but we don't know. There's no explanation of beginning, of purpose, or point, but Luke wants us to know Paul fulfilled it. Remember, what's our principle? Personal integrity. Paul is fulfilling this vow. He has not broken the vow, even though uh, after the uh, correction in Troas, when the the vision of, of the Macedonian man came to him and said, go over to Macedonia, how he wanted to go uh, north uh, northeast and couldn't and he wanted to go southwest and couldn't and he didn't need to go back and the, he was at the sea so he couldn't go forward and the, tr the, the Macedonian vision came to him and said come over to Macedonia he was corrected in his direction there after that correction after the quote failures in Macedonia how he was run off from town after town after town and didn't seem to get any kind of major foothold certainly not like uh, the year and a half, the successes in Corinth. Looking back over the past, what, three chapters, it hasn't been anything you'd really write home about until Corinth. Day 841, got kicked out of another town. This time they tried to kill me. You know, it just, just doesn't make for a great letter. After all of these quote failures, and I put it in quotes because God doesn't define failure the way we define a failure. After the success at Corinth, and success in quotes because God doesn't define success the way we define success. After Paul has been obedient. After he has been obedient, he fulfills this vow. Paul is showing integrity regardless of the circumstances. You realize if, obviously, if, if Luke hadn't put and Paul shaved his head because of a vow he had taken, we'd have never known he shaved his head. We'd never have known about the vow. But because we know about it, we know Paul had integrity. Integrity is often defined as what you do when nobody's looking. 
Well, when he got to Kentria, basically nobody was looking. He could have gone on and we probably wouldn't have known. Maybe somewhere down the line in Acts and Paul didn't fulfill the vow he had committed to fulfilling because he didn't shave his head before leaving Kentria. Maybe that would have been in the scripture at some point if he hadn't. We don't know. We can only deal with what we have. And what we have is Paul showing integrity regardless of the circumstances. Have your circumstances ever led you to not want to fulfill whatever it is you promised you would do? Well, I said I would, but I can't. Some things have come up, and it's just hard right now. Uh, I, yeah, I was going to do that for you, but you, do you remember how you were a jerk? And so I'm not going to do that anymore. I mean, that, if, if that, Paul could have said that to God. God, you want me to fulfill this vow. I mean, shave my head and all. But do you remember how hard it was in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea? You remember all that? You remember me being laughed out of Athens? What part of the vow did you keep, Lord? He could have said that, and, and God could have said, you're still alive, ain't you? You're still on my mission, aren't you? You're still, you, you, you fulfilled the, the uh, you, you, you survived after the promise in Corinth where I said they'd never lay a hand on you, right? I think I, I mean, he could have done all that, but, but Paul, based on what we have, didn't. Despite his circumstances, Paul had integrity. The little things, the little things, a, a friendship here, a vow fulfilled there the third principle and, and now we're getting a little deeper the third principle waiting on God's direction verses 19 through 21 when they reached Ephesus he left them Priscilla and Aquila there but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews when they asked him to stay for a longer time he declined but he said farewell and added I'll come back to you again if God wills then he set sail from Ephesus Went straight to the synagogue, just like he always did. And apparently, um, things were going okay. Remember, he had always wanted to go to Ephesus. If you go back to chapter 15, to the Macedonian call, he, he, it says, he wanted to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit prevented him. Asia, that was Ephesus. This is it. Ephesus was the biggest city in uh, Asia. It was the capital of that province. It was on the road from Rome to uh, all points east. It, everything went through Ephesus. It was a major port city uh, there at the mouth of a, of a river coming down out of, the, um, out of the mountains. It was hugely important. Paul knew the value of evangelizing Ephesus, so that's where he has wanted to go for years now, and the Holy Spirit told him not to, and finally he's here. He's there. He's right where he wanted to be. What else did he have while sitting there in Ephesus? He had moral, spiritual, financial support in Priscilla and Aquila. He had his friends. He had folks to go home to in the evenings and say, man, today was rough. And he could just let it all out that had gone on that day. And he would have folks that would sit and listen to him and say, Paul, it'll be okay. And then the next day when Priscilla's mad about something, Paul could say, Priscilla, it'll be okay. And the next day, when Aquila was upset because of some situation, Priscilla and Paul could say, Aquila, it'll be all right. That's the beauty of this friendship. He had that moral support. He had strong believers that he felt were strong enough to be missionaries with him. 
to give spiritual support. So when things looked bad, when the devil fought, when the thorn in his side popped up or whatever it was, he would be able to go to them and say, guys, we need to pray about this. And they would. He had everything he needed. They were probably very rich. They were probably the way he got financial support for his mission work now. So it wasn't a matter of him having to work. He could go home. They say, hey, we need this. And they no problem. And they write the check, and there it is. And he, he didn't have any real concern, it would appear, in Ephesus for any of these issues. It is a great place to be. He apparently had success, again in quotation marks, in emphasis. They asked him to stay for a longer time. He's not being run out of town. Woohoo! I mean, you could just hear him get excited over this. They, they like me. They really like me. You younger folks, y'all don't know what that is, but it's all right. Sally Field accepting an Oscar? Is that what it was? Yeah. Bugs Bunny makes fun of it. That's why I know what it is. Um, they liked him. He had success. Why wouldn't you stay, Paul? You're there. You've made it. And everything is, and I'll use air quotes for this too, perfect. But God had not told him it was time. And Paul knows now what it means to not for it not to be God's time yet. I was deterred. I was told not to. So I kind of just stopped. And, and, and the Lord appeared as a, a Macedonian man to me saying, Come to Macedonia! And he did. He knew now what it was to wait on God. And he's done it before. This isn't, this isn't rocket science for Paul. Paul's not going, sitting there thinking, wow, I, I've never thought about waiting on God's direction before. He's done it, but Paul, like many of us, got out ahead of God sometimes. That's where we're going? All right, God, thanks. I know where, we're, okay, I'm in. And God's saying, no, no, you missed a turn. You missed a veer. You missed waiting until I told you to go. So Paul's now waiting on God because Paul understands a principle that even the right things are wrong if done before God says go. Was it right to be in Ephesus? Yes. Was it right to want to take the gospel to everybody? Absolutely. Was it right to want to share the gospel in Asia? And we're going to find out and later on. Scripture is going to say that because of Paul, everyone in Asia had heard the gospel. He had shared it because of, and we're going to find out also, it's not just Paul. But because of the work of Paul, because of the seeds of Paul, the gospel has gone out to everyone. But it wasn't time. Was not Paul's time. We can look back at Jesus' life. Where he would say, it's not time yet. I, I, I know what I'm here for. He came for the crucifixion. There were numerous opportunity, opportunities for the authorities to lay hands on him and, and, and take him. And it wasn't time. That was not when it was supposed to happen. God is in control. Even the right things are wrong if done before God says go. Little things. Little things that we can see because we know parts of the, the beginning parts of the story. They make sense now when we look back and go, oh. 
See, Paul's getting it at the end of this three years. Number four, the fourth principle. Gospel unity is most important. And I don't mean gospel unity is more important than anything else. I mean in this situation, in this context, as we read verses 22 and the first part of 23, that the unity was more important than anything else. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he set out traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Paul's relationship with the church in Jerusalem was always tenuous. He was the missionary to the Gentiles, and Jerusalem was primarily a Jewish-believing church. And you read his letter to the Galatian churches and how he's having to uh, fight against some folks from Jerusalem. They, they claim to be a part of James, but probably weren't, but he's got to write against them. And other times he's, he's arguing with them. He, he had to put Peter in his place a little bit in Jerusalem. He, his, his relationship with, with Jerusalem was always a little bit uh, cantankerous and fractious and, and frictious. It was just, I mean, they were... They, were, they had the same goal, they had the same purpose, they had the same mission, but they just never quite got along. Antioch. Antioch is no longer a mission sponsor. Interestingly enough, if you remember, when he went out on the first missionary journey, it says the church of Antioch, the people of Antioch, the believers in Antioch, picked this group out because the Holy Spirit led them to and commissioned, Paul being one of them, Barnabas another, commissioned them to go on a missionary journey, to go and share the gospel with the world. First missionary journey. Beginning of the second missionary journey, which we talked about, Paul and Barnabas have had their fight. Now it's Paul and Silas. And we talked about how the tone is much different. There's no commissioning service. It says they prayed for them and sent them out. And now we come to what will be the beginning of the third missionary journey. There's nothing about what the church of Antioch does. Antioch is no longer a, a mission sponsor here uh, for Paul. You can also notice we never hear from Silas again. Silas isn't mentioned at all. Going with them to Jerusalem, going with them to Antioch. Silas is gone, best we can tell. We don't really know where. But he's not mentioned anymore in Acts. Paul understands, though, what is most important. He understands that though he is at loggerheads often with Jerusalem, though it appears Antioch, the relationship with the Antioch church has cooled because of the argument, the split between him and Barnabas. It does not matter. Paul goes to Jerusalem to greet the church. He goes to Antioch and he spends some time there because Paul understands the message of the kingdom is neither about nor dependent on Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, Jerusalem, 
Antioch, Jews, Gentiles, you or me. Petty differences and debates and discussions, petty differences, debates and discussions, do not, cannot, should not ever get in the way of gospel unity. For Paul, gospel unity was most important. You can almost envision him going to Jerusalem and saying, guys, I know we've had some issues. But let me tell you what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of Gentiles in Achaia and Macedonia. The places I've been on this trip. Going down to Antioch. Y'all, I know things have been rough between us. Let me tell you, you Gentile church. You who saw the need first for a Gentile mission. Let me tell you how God continues to reach Gentiles across the world. We unify around the gospel. Are there things worth dividing over? Yes, there are. We want to talk about the fundamentals of the faith. We want to talk about the deity of Christ. We want to talk about the Trinity. We want to talk about uh, penal substitutionary atonement. We want to talk about the, those things that absolutely we will not uh, abandon or, or uh, uh, equivocate on. Certainly, those things are worth dividing over. But if we want to talk about you don't share the gospel the way I would share the gospel or you don't reach the people uh, that I would reach, Paul's saying, you know what? Those things don't matter. Race, ethnicity, social standing, those things don't matter. What is most important is the gospel. Paul's not concerned about people and personalities, places, churches, groups. He's not concerned about ideas. He's not concerned about philosophies. He's not concerned about public statements or private traditions. All Paul is concerned about is the gospel because he knows the Holy Spirit does the work anyway. It's not about who's witnessing, who's sharing. It's about the Holy Spirit doing the work. And he knows that the message is not how good Paul or Barnabas or Silas or Apollos or the Jerusalem church or the Antioch church or any other church is. The message is Christ crucified, period. That's all they have to worry about. That's all they have to concern themselves with. So Paul goes back into places where he may not have been as welcomed as he has been in the past because he knew the most important thing was the gospel. Number five. Fifth principle. The fifth little thing we see in this passage. The end of verse 23. Where it says he, he went in the region of Galatia and Phrygia. And what was he doing there? He was strengthening all the disciples. Fifth principle. The purpose is to make disciples not just converts. I think we as Southern Baptists have been great for a long time at making converts, baptizing people, putting names on rolls. I think where we have tended to fail is in making disciples. We created a structure and a program that said discipleship was one hour on Sunday afternoons 
before or after children's choir before the evening service. At least that's what it was for me. And we had different names for it. We would call it training union or discipleship training or disciples college or now we call it e-groups here. But we have said that this is when you be discipled. This is when you are discipled. When what do we see in the ministry of friendship? Discipleship was every day among believers coming together to talk about scripture. That was discipleship. And Paul knew that's the purpose. Go ye therefore into all nations. Make converts. Does that sound off? I hope so. Make disciples. Well, disciples have to be taught. Disciples have to grow in their faith. And so Paul goes back through the churches of the first missionary journey. After going to Jerusalem, tell them what's going on. After going to Antioch and telling them what's going on, he, he, he goes back through these churches and he strengthens the disciples. What do we see? We see believers discipling believers. Believers should be discipling believers. That's the purpose. I should be discipling believers. That's not just my job. That's your job. That's every believer's job. Is to disciple other believers. We have a discipleship minister. That's not just her job. That's not only her job. It's our job to disciple. And what does that look like? That looks like meals. And that looks like hanging, around, hanging out around the swimming pool. And that looks like uh, going to... Uh, Bar, go into these botanical garden thingies in, in orange. Go into, you know, it looks like just hanging out, doing life. The phrase has been so overused that it's a cliche now. But yeah, doing life together as believers, but with purpose. You didn't disciple each other if you hang out for three hours and never mention Jesus. You fellowshiped, but you didn't disciple. Take those opportunities to talk about it. Believers should be discipling believers. Discipleship, discipling is, as, is just as important as evangelizing. <gasps> what, Michael? Read Matthew 13. And read the, the parable of the sower. Lots of, air quotes, converts. Lots of seeds scattered. Some with roots, some with a stalk. But those that were discipled grew. Those where the, the, the seed took root and it produced fruit, those are the ones that are considered believers. The rest of them didn't make it. Why? The seed was out there. The gospel was powerful. It got their attention. They liked it. Some of, you know, of them even accepted it. Sure, that makes sense. But because there was no discipleship, because there was no... Uh, taking root of that gospel message, they didn't last. So really, maybe this isn't such a little thing after all. Discipling believers. The, the gospel seed that is planted, that is sown, can quickly be snatched away by the brokenness of this world. If, God, if Paul had not gone back to those churches where guaranteed they were facing persecution. I mean, look at his letters. How have you so quickly 
uh, strayed from the true gospel. Who has bewitched you? He writes to the churches in Galatia. How has this happened? How has what happened? That they were straying from the faith. He was worried about their salvation. Did the seed that was planted not take root? And Paul was there. Look, he went back and discipled them. And he still had to write a letter to them saying, guys, there's an issue. Now, it's, actually, I got my timeline messed up. He actually wrote the letter before he went back to them. He hears about it, writes the letter, but then he has to go back and try to correct some things. Nonetheless, he recognized the potential for the gospel truth to be snatched away from them before it ever had a chance to take root. And it is the brokenness of this world that will snatch it. Define brokenness however you want to. For them, the brokenness of the world was uh, being Christians in a pagan society. New believers among Jews and Gentiles that both thought you were crazy. And subversive sometimes. That's the brokenness of that world they lived in. You have the Corinthian churches, we're going to read the letters later on, that grew up in this pagan, hyper-sexualized society, and they're trying to figure out, how do I leave these things behind that are both, I feel, necessary, but also habitual for me? How do I leave these things behind to follow Christ the way I should? And they were torn between two worlds. The brokenness of sinfulness was tearing them away from the God they served. That brokenness was never God's plan. That brokenness is a result of us messing up God's design. See, God's design was perfection. God's design was a people in perfect relationship with him for eternity. God's design was absolute perfection on the earth. And then sin messed that up. Sin always messes up. God's design. And it's sin comes from us doing things our own way. I've got a better plan than God has. Sometimes it was Paul thinking that. Sometimes it's us thinking that. But it's always sinful to put ourselves in front of God and say our plan is better. And inevitably, sin leads to brokenness. We see it in every situation here. We see the, the brokenness of the relationship between the Jerusalem church and Paul. We see the brokenness of the relationship between the Antioch church and Paul. We see uh, the brokenness between Paul and Barnabas. Now we see some brokenness between Paul and Silas, or we can at least assume something happened there. Brokenness always messes it up. And we think we're going to fix it. We think we're going to do things to, to rectify the, the brokenness. And all we ever do, it doesn't lead us anywhere except to more brokenness. The scripture's clear on that as well. There is one fix for the brokenness, the gospel. The, the, the one thing we should be unified about, unified over, the thing that Paul understood was more, more important than some, some loggerheads in Jerusalem or uh, a, a messed up relationship in Antioch. The gospel was most important. And we are, even in our worst situations, usually, we are excited when we hear somebody came to Christ. Well, I don't like them over there, but they're winning people to Jesus. The gospel is the only thing that cures, that heals the brokenness. But the gospel doesn't just do it because we apply it. 
hey, I shared the gospel, all the brokenness is gone. No, the gospel requires repentance and belief. Repentance of our sin, repentance of trying to do it ourselves, and in that case, breaking God's design. But belief in the gospel, belief the gospel, uh, in the gospel that says Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day, just like Scripture said, to prove his defeat of sinfulness. When we accept that gospel testimony and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we will be saved. And from there, we begin to recover and pursue God's design again. We begin to see things in our lives come together. We begin to see things like Paul saw, where he could go to Jerusalem and share the, greet the church and share the message, share what God had been doing, how he could go to Antioch also and share what God had been doing. How even after failure, after failure, after failure in, in towns in uh, Macedonia, he gets to Corinth and he meets a new ministry partner group. Friends that are going to encourage him and go with him. And that begins to recover God's design. And Paul, as we move into the next, the third missionary journey, God pursues, uh, rather Paul pursues God's design by taking that message of the gospel to a lost world, which is our mandate, which is our call, and makes disciples. So what, what about you? Where in those circles are you? Are you wrapped up in brokenness? Do you need to respond to the gospel? Have you trusted Jesus, but you need to pursue God's design? What is it that you need to do this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your message. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to hearts today. We pray that we would not miss the little things. Because truthfully, there are no little things in your kingdom. God, we pray that we would be obedient in all things. And we would see your word as it speaks to us from every, every angle, every corner, and every apparent uh, apparently useless sentence, God, you, you have a word for us. Thank you for that. May we respond appropriately this morning as you work on every heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what is your decision this morning? What do you need to do in this time of response? Do you need to trust Jesus? Do you need to follow him more fully? We're going to stand. We're going to sing. Maybe you'd like to pray with Tom over here on my right. Maybe you'd like to pray with me over here on my left. Maybe you'd like to just come to these rails and pray. But whatever it is, you stand, sing this morning, and let's do business with God.